welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and this episode looks at how consumer power got political. I'm talking to Dr Bronwyn Everill, the 1973 lecturer in history at Gonvalon Keyes College at the University of Cambridge. Her research examines the abolition of slavery as a global movement, tracking the economic and ethical issues that united those campaigning to end the trade. In the process, she's made her own transatlantic journey from the lecture theatres of Harvard and archival work in West Africa to Cambridge, a place currently untangling its own complex financial links to slavery, but also home to some of the most effective abolitionists of their day. Good morning, Dr. Everill. Thank you very much for meeting me on this cold spring day. Good morning, nice to see you. This is the first time I have to tell you that I've ever given anybody a rendezvous in a churchyard uh, for an interview. But I discovered yesterday doing my research that here in this churchyard, really at the heart of Cambridge, a very special child is commemorated, a child that has a lot to do with the history of abolition in Britain. Can I show you the plaque? That yes, just... great, thank you. Okay, let's go. Now, I've been all around this church, and I can tell you this plaque is the only one on the outside walls of the church. And it's right here in a very prominent position beside the front door. So here we go. Oh, wow. Near this place lies interred Anna Maria Vassar, daughter of Gustavus Vassar the African. She died July 21st, 1797, aged four years. So who was Gustavus Vassar the African and why would we be commemorating his daughter? He's better known um, these days as Olauda Equiano and he was one of the originators of the abolition movement here in Britain. And he was uh, good friends with Thomas Clarkson, who also lived here in Cambridge and sort of started his abolition work here in Cambridge. And he was married in Cambridge, and, and this is the plaque to his daughter, who sadly died just after he and his wife died as well. So she died an orphan, aged just four years, but yeah. clearly she was a very loved child and a very mourned child because this is a pretty large plaque. It's not a tiny thing. Somebody very much wanted her to be remembered. Near this place lies interred Anna Maria Vassa, daughter of Gustavus Vassa the African. She died 21st July 1797, aged four years. Should simple village rhymes attract thine eye, stranger, as thoughtfully thou passed by, know that there lies beside this humble stone a child of color, happily not thine own. Her father, born of Afric's sunburnt race, torn from his native field, Ah, foul disgrace. Through various toils at length to Britain came, espoused, so heaven ordained, 
an English dame, and followed Christ. Their hope, two infants dear, but one, a hapless orphan, slumbers here. To bury her, the village children came and dropped choice flowers and lisped her early fame. And some that loved her most, as if unblessed, bedewed with tears the white wreath on their breast. But she is gone and dwells in that abode where some of every clime shall joy in God. So here on this plaque, Equiano is called Gustavus Vassa, the African, the African. It's almost he was the most famous African yeah. <laughs> of his day. Why was that? Well, he wrote an autobiography and toured around Britain, publicizing his story and working with the Sons of Africa, which were a group who were dedicated to um, trying to raise awareness of the slave trade and its horrors. Um, so he had been enslaved in Nigeria as a child and had, had been sold various times um, around the Atlantic world and had eventually been freed and, and ended up in Britain. And in one of his positions, he had learned to read and write English. And he put those talents to use in, in raising awareness and campaigning around Britain, really extensively campaigning around Britain. He traveled nonstop, basically throughout the 1780s and 1790s, promoting this idea, raising awareness, gathering other activists, and bringing uh, attention to the, to the slave trade and to the sort of wider system of chattel slavery. So just to recap, kidnapped from his family, aged 11, in what we now call Nigeria, yeah. sold into slavery in America, traveled here, there and everywhere, I think was sold to a naval captain, yeah. then ends up in London and writes this extraordinary account. Uh, as I understand it, it's the only account of anybody about what it was actually like to be on a slave ship doing that middle passage, as it's called, between Africa and America. And his book is called The Interesting Narrative of Ulada Equiano or Gustavus Vassa the African. And he was just 44 when he wrote it. So he's had a packed yeah. life. And what really struck me when I was looking at it was, you know, this was published for the first time in 1789. That's the same year as the French Revolution's kicking off. Mm -hmm. What an amazing moment in history. Yeah. And in that same year, of course, he meets Susanna Cullen when he comes to Cambridge to promote this book. Yeah. He meets the woman who would become his wife four years later and the mother of this little girl, Anna Maria Vassa. Yeah, and, and also um, another daughter called Joanna who was younger. And Equiano's narrative is super important in the sort of framing of the abolition story going forward throughout the 19th century because that autobiographical form that he uses in telling his story becomes a really popular form for a lot of other people who had escaped slavery to, to tell their stories. And when the emphasis shifts to the American story of abolition, uh, a lot of people from the American abolition movement come to Britain and similarly tour around Britain telling their stories in, in a very similar pattern and sort of following uh, in Equiano's footsteps. So this is really sort of first-hand testimony, the, the first autobiographies of slavery, really, yeah, which definitely. in themselves are extraordinary because many enslaved people, A, 
never made it that far, yeah. never made it to freedom. Secondly, possibly never learned to read and write. So this is a rare, rare thing that he's managed to achieve. And there were nine editions of the interesting narrative that he wrote in his lifetime, and that made him a, a pretty wealthy man. Yeah, definitely. So if we think about it, here's this incredible monument to Equiano's life, and particularly his daughter here, right under our noses in Cambridge. And of course, even today, how many times have we cycled down Wilberforce Road, Clarkson Road? It's right here happening. Can you tell me a bit more about what's going on? Yeah, so um, Clarkson is from Cambridgeshire. He's from Wisbeach, and he becomes involved with the idea of um, abolishing the slave trade because he responds to a particular essay prize competition. What a Cambridge by, thing. Yeah. <laughs> Put forward by, the, by one of the vice chancellors. I think it, it was a sort of general philosophical kind of essay about is it legal or moral to, to make another person your slave? So Clarkson responds to so, this essay question. Yeah, but in doing so, he does a bunch of research and he ends up not really responding in a, in a sort of abstract philosophical way, but really grounded in the current Atlantic slave trade experience. And, you know, he comes to Cambridge to receive the prize and uh, on his way back to London, he has this moment of awakening. You know, he's the, he's the son of an Anglican preacher, so the, he, he, he refers to it as a sort of moment of awakening where he realizes that, you know, if he really believes the things that he wrote in this essay, then he really has to do something about it. So, Bronwyn, what I'm getting a sense of here is that Cambridge was a real nexus in Britain for the abolition movement. You know, we've got Equiano here marrying a local Cambridge woman, having his two daughters here, doing everything he can to promote his book, which, of course, was the thing everybody was reading. We've got Thomas Clarkson winning his essay competition and having that kind of you've got to put your money where your mouth is moment about what he'd be spending the rest of his life campaigning for. We've got William Wilberforce, who was a Cambridge undergraduate, then going on to Parliament to try and drive the legislation through. But there's one particular event that sort of brings all these people together and Equiano was really central in publicising that too. Can you tell me more about the Zong Massacre? Yeah, so the Zong Massacre occurs at the beginning of the 1780s and really brings national attention to the horrors of the slave trade, uh, in part because Equiano and his partnership with Granville Sharp brings it to national attention. So the Zong Massacre happens just off the coast of Jamaica when a slave ship throws almost all of its enslaved people overboard. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's, it's a really horrific story that allowed Equiano brings to Granville Sharp in order to raise awareness of the horrors of the Middle Passage, um, which he had personally experienced. And it really captures the British imagination and, and people become really horrified about the scale and the, and the problems and the excesses of the slave trade because we don't really know what happened with the Zong because the master of the Zong loses conveniently the uh, logbook um, saying what happens. But, but there's a lot of speculation by abolitionists, which people believe, and, and there's no reason not to, that the people were thrown overboard in order to claim insurance money rather than selling enslaved people for a loss in the Jamaican market. In other words, they were worth more dead exactly. than alive. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so that really symbolizes all of the problems of the slave trade, right? That the ship was filled to overflowing with people. They didn't bring enough provisions. People, you know, were, were starving. And then this extra tragedy of insurance claims on top of all of that. So when that is made public in Britain, it really 
raises awareness and people are really horrified by this. And Equiano and, and Sharp use that to kickstart the wider abolition movement. So bringing in people beyond the sort of small circles of Quakers and the Sons of Africa, who Equiano was part of, who had been campaigning for a long time, and makes it a wider spread activist movement. Now, I know that Equiano died in London when he was just 52 years old, leaving these two little girls behind. And his daughter here, Anna Maria, died just a few months after him. But what a life. I mean, what did he pack in in his 52 years? Absolutely extraordinarily influential. And yet Equiano wasn't just here in Britain agitating. He was also thinking, how can I improve things back in Africa? Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so Equiano and Grenville Sharp worked together to set up a colony in what's now Sierra Leone, the province of freedom, as a sort of place of return for people of African descent living in Britain, but also elsewhere in the British Empire, to return and set up their own republic of freedom there. This was his utopia, this was his kind of promised land where people could go home, but in much better conditions than they had previously enjoyed. That's the idea, yeah, exactly. And I know that your research has taken you to Sierra Leone, so maybe could we go back to your office perhaps and you could tell me about that stage of the story? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so Bronwyn, we're back now um, in your office building at Gonville and Keys. And up until now, we've been talking about the Cambridge connections in terms of the abolition movement. But I wonder if we could go a bit more global now. And could you give me an overview of where we're talking about, who we're talking about, the kind of numbers involved in both the slave trade and then abolition itself? Yeah, the slave trade really starts... Slowly at the beginning, uh, at the end of the 15th and very beginning of the 16th century, the Portuguese are exchanging goods with various African ports, uh, and they start to become involved with shipping African slaves and, and using them not only in the context of exchanging goods within Africa, but also starting to export them across the Atlantic um, and use them as enslaved laborers in Portuguese colonies. And this takes off really quite rapidly from those low starting numbers. So growing from, you know, around 500 some in the very beginning years to 80,000 a year being exported by the end of the 18th century. Um, so there's a really rapid rise. And part of that rise is reflected in the fact that a bunch of different European countries become involved in the slave trade over that period. So what starts out as a, a sort of minor Portuguese part of their wider exchange with Africa becomes the sole sort of support of that uh, commercial relationship with Africa for British traders, for French traders, for Dutch traders, and eventually uh, for, for some Spanish and American traders at the end of the period as well. So we're talking a movement that from start to finish, probably 250 years, 300 years worth of trade how many people, how many Africans do you think were involved? 
so the rough numbers um, are around 12 and a half million who are carried across the Atlantic. That's two holocausts. Yeah, it's a it's a huge a huge number, and the Middle Passage is especially devastating. So the, those twelve and a half million also all don't make it over to the New World, and it's a triangular relationship, isn't it? So it's enslaved people moving from Africa to the Americas. What's America then shipping to Britain? In the British part of the trade, sugar is the, is the really key resource that's being produced by enslaved labor and fueling development here in Britain. And then the sort of profits from that then get reinvested into a variety of British industries and you know, the emergence of manufacturing capabilities here. And then what is Britain trading back to Africa? A lot of global goods, basically, from the... British Empire and British commerce more generally. So what's really in demand um, in African markets are um, precious beads produced in Europe, iron, um, which they then turn into other products on the ground, but they're importing uh, European iron, and Indian cloths especially. So there's a sort of big fashion driver to a lot of the commerce as well. That's Incredible. So what basically from, let's say, the 1740s to the 1820s, sugar becomes Britain's most valuable import. Our sweet tooth is literally driving the slave trade. And at the same time, your book uh, published last year, Ethical Capitalism in the Age of Abolition, starts by zeroing in on a sugar bowl. And on that sugar bowl is written... East India sugar not made by slaves. And that gives you the title for your book, Not Made by Slaves. Can you tell me about how sugar works in terms of the abolition movement and what was going on there? People start to become aware of the sort of problems of the slave trade itself because of things like the Zong Massacre um, and the awareness raised by people like Equiano. But it's sort of all a little bit abstract, right? So yes, this is happening far away, and yes, it is bad, um, and everybody sort of agrees that that's the case. But it, it's the sort of moves in the in the late 1780s and 1790s by the abolitionists to focus on how the global supply chain actually really implicates people in Britain in perpetuating the need for this enslaved labor elsewhere. So there's a campaign in the 1790s to make people aware of the fact that the sugar that they're using in their tea and they're cooking with is actually produced by enslaved labor um, and that they, as consumers, are responsible for creating the demand for this kind of horrific slave trade that's taking place. So what's then happening is you're getting what we might call today a boycott, is that right? Yeah, so they call it um, an abstention campaign, so abstaining from the use of sugar um, in their products. Um, but it's not just a matter of sort of silently boycotting something or just giving something up. Um, they are very vocal about it, and you might say they are um, virtue signaling about it. So they, as you said, they create new kinds of consumer goods that they can demonstrate that they are, you know, participating in this boycott with. So the sugar bowl is one of those. Um, the, the idea is that you bring it out in front of your friends, you're having them over for tea, and they see that this sugar in the bowl is East India sugar and not West India sugar. 
as a sort of conversational starting point so that then you can convert them to also participating in the boycott. That is fascinating. So these sugar bowls were being produced in Britain. Were they calling it ethical commerce? No, not, not necessarily in those terms. So sometimes they refer to it in, as moral commerce. So would you like some morally correct sugar in your tea becomes a way into a wider conversation? Yeah, exactly. And there are, in newspapers and things associated with the abolitionist movement, sample dialogues so that you know how to introduce it you know, into conversation with your friends. And it's really focused in, in particular on women's social engagements. Um, so there's a real emphasis on the role women play as the people who are sort of directing consumption within the house um, and who are socializing in these particular ways um, as sort of providing a moral compass for their friends. You've done, to me, quite a journalistic thing because you've followed the money, haven't you, in your research? You've been like, who's buying what, where? And you're really underlining in in this book that you can't separate the politics and the commerce. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you got to think about that? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that behind the campaign for these ethical goods is obviously a switch from the production of sugar in the West Indies by enslaved labor to that East India sugar produced by ostensibly free labor. And I was interested in understanding, as you say, who is the money behind that or who's going to benefit from that switch? Um, and are they thinking about it in those terms or are they you know, just sort of rolling with it? Um, and are they actively thinking about using consumer demand to reshape these markets? And the answer is yes, they, they are regularly thinking about the role of the consumer in all of this. And the idea behind a lot of these abstention campaigns and the things that follow in the, in the 19th century is that changing consumer demand will show that the correct way to behave um, within this globalized global supply chain will profit you. So in other words, to succeed, the abolitionists had to show not only was it wrong, morally wrong, but it was also uneconomic. People beginning in the, in the 18th century start to think about their purchases as uh, a form of power within a global supply chain. At a certain point, palm oil enters the picture, which you also use as an example after sugar. Tell me about palm oil, because again, highly conflicted product there. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously now it is extremely controversial because of the sort of environmental devastation that palm oil plantations generate. But at the time, it actually was effectively the thing that ended the slave trade because it, it, it ended up replacing the sort of supply side of the equation. So over the course of the beginning of the 19th century, a variety of abolitionist businesses were operating in West Africa trying to resolve the dilemma that faced the African states that had been involved with the slave trade. So if they weren't allowed to ship sugar anymore or produce sugar, what else could they produce that would allow them to thrive and earn a living, but that wouldn't involve slavery? Yeah, exactly. So there's a a sort of hope that rather than having to export slaves to buy all the products that they had been buying from the global market, um, they could instead sell products like palm oil. And there are a variety of other products that they look at, like ivory and ground nuts, so peanuts and that kind of thing. And palm oil really takes off in the 
West African region from Sierra Leone down through Nigeria. And who's buying the palm oil and what are they making with it at that point? The mechanical and industrial um, development that's happening here in Britain requires a lot of lubricants like palm oil. And so it takes off uh, just at the time that the rise of factories uh, happens in Britain. And so it's used for candles and it's used for soap especially. And it's used in sort of lubricating industrial machinery. So here's your African palm oil, which is then fueling the Industrial Revolution here in Britain. Exactly. So if we step back into the African context for a minute, I know you've worked on archives in Sierra Leone and Liberia and Senegal and Gambia. You've gone right back to the source to find out what was going on and how Africans themselves were working from home to try and end this trade in slaves that was actually devastating their own people. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you found in those archives and how they work? Yeah, so I think what was important for me in understanding all of this was thinking about those people who switched from producing slaves for export to producing palm oil or ground nuts or the other things that came after and sort of what was behind their reasoning for for making those switches. And what I found was actually there were plenty of people within African contexts um, who were equally politically involved and economically involved in this project, um, who no longer wanted to be forced into selling increasing numbers every year of, of enslaved people in order to access you know, the iron that they needed or, or the currencies that they needed to sustain life on the coast. So there are sort of big political movements at the end of the 18th century, roughly around the same time as a variety of big political movements here in Europe and, and across, across the ocean in, in America, that I sort of started to think about as, as a whole. Um, so all of these movements are happening at the same time, and I was wondering, you know, actually, are they more connected than we had thought? I think your book's fascinating because you are literally joining the dots between what was going on in Britain, what was going on in the United States, what was going on in Africa itself, and drawing these lines of coherence between how everybody was thinking in terms of we must stop this trade. When you went to the African context and went to those archives there, was that considered quite a radical thing to do? So people have been working on a variety of, you know, revolutionary movements and these kinds of jihads in West Africa for a while. But I think what the book tries to do in a different way is to to take that scholarship um, and those sort of approaches to what's happening in West Africa and and look at it in this broader context and say, actually, that it's the slave trade that's tying everybody together. It's this commerce in enslaved people that's tying everybody together. And that there are a sort of series of excesses and catastrophes and horrors of the slave trade made public in all of these different places at various different times across the late 18th century. What I find fascinating about it is that in all of these places, despite their different religious traditions, despite their different political contexts, the, the reactions are actually fairly similar, that there are these revolutions and that they they do in many cases 
turn to these commercial solutions to the problem. And I think it was really it was really working back from those commercial solutions that got me to this place to begin with because I was just fascinated that they're all using commerce, commercial treaties, commercial boycotts, um, bans on certain kinds of trade through the mid-19th century regularly as some kind of tool against the slave trade and and against enslaved labor. And I was just looking for the origins of, you know, where where that sentiment that actually it really was a commercial problem came from. There you are as a white American woman working in these archives in a field that we know is highly politically charged, highly sensitive. Have you ever been made to feel that this is not your story to tell? I think I have never been made to feel that way. And I think actually, if anything, the problem is more that there aren't enough people telling the story from that perspective. I think the stories that I'm interested in telling are stories about these global connections and the ways that, in particular, these experiences in Africa are actually changing and shaping the ways that Americans and Europeans are conceiving of the world, are thinking about political economy, are thinking about ideas of governance and ideas of rights and responsibilities, ideas about humanitarianism, how these engagements within Africa are shaping global intellectual history at a common or mundane level, <laughs> the ways that people everyday people are thinking about politics and, and intellectual life and, and political economy. And I don't think that that necessarily is a story that has to be told by any, in, any person in particular, because it is a global story. If we back up a minute, how did all this interest start for you, you know, as an undergraduate historian? What guided you into this particular area? And can you trace your thought lines, if you like, a little bit for me? Yeah, I have always been really interested in the history of abolitionism, particularly from an American context. I did almost exclusively American history as an undergrad and almost exclusively American Civil War history as an undergrad. Um, it's just something that I'm, I find really fascinating. But I had these couple of moments as an undergrad where I had a sort of revelation about the ways that what was happening in America were tied to these bigger issues. One was a class um, with Vincent Brown, who taught me about the age of Atlantic revolutions, um, bringing Haiti and France into this picture of the American Revolution. And that really opened my eyes to the ways that ideas and political formations were moving around this world. And that was at Harvard. Yeah, that's where I went for an undergrad degree. And then the other was an article that I read shortly afterwards by another historian called Sven Beckert, which looked at the ways that the American Civil War impacted cotton production around the world. And so had this unintended consequence of increasing British investment in Egyptian cotton production. And I was, again, fascinated that this thing that I had thought of as such a national story had these ramifications around the world. So I think those were the things that really started me thinking in this global way. But I actually didn't then move on and become a historian straight away. I, I went, I had a little sidetrack where I, I did a degree in archaeology first. And and then had a year out where I tried to think about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, <laughs> where were you having that thought? I was interning at a museum 
um, in Oxford. And I was thinking about thinking about working in a museum. I was applying to law school. I was sort of... Oh, wow. Yeah. Then I stopped that and I went traveling for a while and I just was trying to figure out what it was that I liked to do. And I realized that I really wanted to come back to history. And by that point, I realized that historian was a job. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody Um, pointed that out to you. No, not really. (laughs) What I wanted to bring to my PhD research was my interest in, in the story of abolition, my new ideas about global abolition, and also some of the stuff that I had been working on in my archaeology degree, which was looking at the sort of material culture of empires. So how, how you can tell where an empire has been long after the fact. And so I, I brought those together by looking at the ways that abolitionism worked in settler colonies for freed slaves in Sierra Leone and Liberia. And then five years ago, was it, you came to Cambridge. What's it been like pursuing that work here and at CRASH as well, which is very interdisciplinary? How has that changed your thinking? Yeah, I think it's been really useful to be able to continue thinking with archaeology and history and, you know, all the sort of oral archives that you need to use in African studies the material culture aspect of this is really well supported at Keys particularly, but also more widely at Cambridge and, and especially at Crash. So literally the things, the objects that tell us something about a particular yeah. moment. So those sugar bowls and those, you know, those samples of cotton cloth not made by slaves. There's a there's a real network here of people working on those particular kinds of approaches. And how is living in Cambridge itself, how is that fed in? Well, it's, you know, nice to be surrounded by the material remains of all of these abolitionists who were here not that long ago, really. I mean, I think one of the more recent things that's been helpful in thinking about these questions is the university's new initiatives focused on the legacies of, of slavery in the university and in the, in the various colleges. And that's due to report that major inquiry is due to report this later this year 2021 yeah that's right are you involved in that so i'm involved in the college's examination of of our particular relationship with the slave trade and and legacies of it and what has that thrown up so far so i mean most of the connections have been through legacies or through people who had payments through the slavery compensation schemes in the 1830s Yes, because it's important to underline that when the slave trade was abolished, it wasn't the former slaves who were compensated, was it? It was the slave owners to the tune of something like £17 billion in today's money. That is extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean, it's a very complicated story because a lot of the people who were given payments were not necessarily people who were located in these West Indian plantations, but were earning some kind of pension through them or who had investments in them. There is this hugely complicated financial system that is built on the back of slavery, including pensions and including these benefactions. And the point of this research is not necessarily to point fingers at individuals um, who are involved, but to show that many of the institutions that built modern Britain built it through this complicated um, reliance on the slavery system. Yet again, we're back to this idea of follow the money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, incredible. 
Bronwyn, one thing I have to say, when I read your book, I was so struck. I always love to read people's acknowledgements pages because I think it tells you an awful lot about somebody. And I was so struck by the fact that your acknowledgements page for this book, which, let's remind ourselves, is published by Harvard University Press. It's not, you know, a small deal. Your acknowledgements start with, and I counted them, 42 names that have supported you in the writing of this book because they have given you childcare. That sounded like an amazingly political, brilliant choice to put at the, at the front and centre of a scholarly work to say, literally in that African way, it takes a village to raise a child. You have three children, all quite little, and they all arrived during the writing and researching of this book. And you are saying to Harvard University Press, to academic life in general, guys, 42 people needed to help me to sit down and write. I just got goosebumps when I read that. That is so brilliant. What made you decide this is the place to say this? I mean, I wanted to acknowledge all of the labor that goes into something like this. And not just the, you know, sitting and thinking labor, but everybody's help in allowing me to have the sitting and thinking labor. And yeah, you did ask what Cambridge had done for me. And one of the things that Cambridge did was allow me to hire many students as babysitters. <laughs> you get a top quality babysitter in Cambridge, <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah. No, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge all the ways that people help make a book like this possible. What still needs to change in academia? Because even in the context of this global pandemic, any academic mother of any age of child that I know currently, not just academic mothers, but if we're talking about this context, have been absolutely melting in the last year. What else still needs to change for female scholars who also want to raise children to, to not melt? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two angles to get at it. One is a money angle. I, th I think that we as a global society need to think about if we are going to say that work should be monetized, then we need to include all kinds of work. And then the other thing I would say is that institutions, and I am very pleased again that all of my institutions that I've worked at have been very open about this, but that institutions need to be aware of these differences and accommodating to people's different approach to childcare. So I regularly bring my children to meetings when we have meetings in person. When they're off from school for various reasons, they, they may or may not sit in on some classes. And I think having a more flexible approach to that kind of thing can only be to the good. Definitely. In conclusion, Bronwyn, it sounds like despite the immense amount of juggling, and we're talking about a global academic career, a local mothering career, deep thought going into this, you know, a lot of archival work, and it's beautifully written in your book as well. You've put a lot of time into making the history really a story it just zips along <laughs> where do you want to go next what's the next research angle for you yeah so I think I'm going to do a bit more on thinking about the ways that the age of revolutions in the Atlantic world shape the politics of the Atlantic world more generally including Africa in that picture 
So thinking about various political changes that happen in this period that we call the Age of Revolution, so from the late 18th um, through the mid-19th century. Thinking about, you know, questions about representation, about citizenship, about women's role within that idea of citizenship, about the formulation of, of the economy, about the shape of the state, so empires versus nation states versus smaller communities, um, and thinking about how looking at Africa in that same period might help us think about those transformations as being responses to this globalized world of the late 18th century. Heading back to Africa, more archival work in the very near future. Hopefully, yeah. Dr. Bronwyn Everall, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you very, very much for speaking to us here on Thoughtlines. Thanks for having me. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thoughtlines.